Welcome to Pop Pantheon, the podcast where we completely overanalyze the music, legacy, and cultural impact of all your favorite pop stars. I'm your host, DJ Louis XIV, and I'm a DJ, writer, and all-around pop music fanatic. I've spent my entire life and career thinking about, dissecting, and being obsessed with pop stars. Their music, their legacies, how they relate to one another, to the larger pop musical landscape, and to culture more broadly. What separates an icon from a mere superstar? Why do some careers become the soundtrack to our lives, and why do others flop? Whose work and legacy transcends time, and whose feels stuck in it? Every episode of Pop Pantheon, we'll devote an entire episode to a pop icon. From titans of the genre like Beyonce and all the way down to uh, lesser titans like Nicole Scherzinger. Each episode, you'll hear a little breakdown from me and then some distinguished guests and I will chop it up about their careers, discographies, public personas, live performances, music videos, feuds, tweets, you name it. And at the end, we'll turn pop into fantasy football, make our final judgment and place them in the official pop pantheon. Welcome, everyone, to episode two of Pop Pantheon. I am so excited to be here again with you. And I want to start off by saying thank you so, so much to everyone who listened to the last episode, who subscribed, who shared it. We literally charted on the Apple Podcast music chart which was a gag and a half. I couldn't fucking believe it. So thank you so much to everybody that tuned in for not letting me flop, you know? I really appreciate that. And even though last week's episode was about Ariana, I also want to quickly extend my thoughts and prayers to all of the Katie Cats who reached out to me via text, via DM on Instagram, to argue with me that I was dragging Katy Perry, that she was in too low of a tier. And then of course, on the flip side, the same amount of people that said I was giving Katy Perry too much credit and she was too high in the Pantheon. I just want to say, I hear you all and fear not, Katy Perry will have her day on this podcast and we will certainly be hashing out all sides of the Katy argument. And I also want to say, I am a Katy cat. I stan. So... Don't hate me, Katy Perry. I also want to say up top that if you're enjoying the podcast so far, please rate it, subscribe to it on Apple Podcasts. It really helps with the like dreaded algorithm. And the more people that rate it and subscribe, I guess the more people that see it. So if you want to hit pause and give us five stars. I also want to say that if you want to leave a comment, one thing I'd love to hear from everybody is who do you want to see covered on the podcast? I would love to hear feedback on that, which artists you guys are dying to hear us dissect here. And yeah, so leave that in a comment and I'll be checking those neurotically all the time because that's what I do now. Before we dive into this week's topic, I want to give everyone a quick rundown of the Pantheon tiers again. I don't know quite how to address like describing them in detail every single episode. And to be frank, I don't think it's even that necessary. Like it's going to just become something that everybody understands through the conversations themselves. But I feel like just given that we're so early in the podcast, it's good to remind people of how the Pantheon works. And I'll just say again that there is a mini-sode in this feed that spends... 10 minutes dissecting the Pantheon. And there is also a graphic on our Instagram at Pop Pantheon Pod, which you should go follow that helps sort of give a visual layout of the Pantheon tiers. But 
I will give a quick, quick, quick rundown here again before we get into this week's episode. The Pantheon has five tiers. The first one is the icons. These are the major big dogs. Like you got to think of people that are just so ingrained in the idea of pop music that we can't even separate pop music from these people there. Literally Michael, Beyonce. I am reticent to name names because that's the point of the podcast is debating who's where, but that's those two names I feel like help sort of give you a lay of the land of tier one. They're the, there is no pop music without these people. In tier two, which are the mega stars, these are still huge legendary stars. And I guess it's, this is a good point for me to sort of say, being in the Pantheon at all is an achievement. So let's not make value judgments based on like, oh my God, they're only in tier four. There's plenty of super respectable artists in all tiers and it's not a value judgment about their music. It's just about how culture has received them. So again, tier two is the mega stars. These folks are still huge. They're legendary. There's decades of hits. You know, there's massive name recognition, but they're just a smidge lower. Like you wouldn't maybe think that pop music wouldn't exist without them sort of like as we think of it today. Tier three is mere superstars, which are either stars that are currently having their first huge moment. And by huge moment, I mean lots of hit singles on the tip of everybody's tongue. You can't talk about pop music in this day and age without bringing them up. So Billie Eilish or Art Lair, last week's subject, Ariana, as a great example. And then also in that tier are people that only had that big moment. So it's not like you you still have to have had a huge few albums and singles. It's not like you could just have like one hit and be in tier three. Like you still had a giant moment. It's just that it really was about that first moment, whether that was one album, three albums, a series of eight or 10 hit songs, that kind of thing. Tier four is the working class pop stars. This is, you know, more for like one album wonders or one to two album wonders where the moment was sort of short lived. So I don't know, Nelly Furtado comes to mind. And then also like blue collar pop stars, which is what I like to sort of think of as artists that are always like there, but never have like a huge moment where they like take over the cultural conversation. So Demi Lovato or Shawn Mendes, these kind of people. And then finally in tier five is everybody else. So it's everyone from one hit wonders to one of going no hit wonders. And then most importantly, niche legends who are artists that aren't super integral to the mainstream pop conversation, but are important cult figures who don't necessarily have big hits on like the Billboard Hot 100, but are still huge stars in a different ecosystem. So Tanache, Kim Petras, like Charlie and Carly, etc. So that's the Pantheon. Again, please feel free to scroll back to the mini-sode or head over to our Instagram for more info if you want like more details on how I'm thinking about each tier and what the specific criteria is. But again, you don't have to. This will all become clear like through the conversations that we're having here. I think it's going to become second nature to everybody. So with all of that said, let's get into this week's episode, which is about the princess of Crunk and Bee, Sierra. So here we go. Oh my goodies. So here's a little refresher on Sierra for those of us who were born before 1980, after 1995, and or those of us who are not gay. Sierra emerged in 2004 with her debut album, Goodies, which featured the number two peaking singles, Oh! and One Two Step, along with the chart-topping title track produced by a then red-hot little John. Oh, I 
a moment where hip hop and pop were very much intermingled atop the Hot 100, personified by artists like 50 Cent, Ja Rule, Ashanti, Jennifer Lopez, Goodies cannily incorporated Southern hip hop sounds into pop music and earned Sierra the venerated title Princess of Crunk and B and made her a late period TRL superstar. She followed up those hits from her first record the next year with a feature on Missy Elliott's smash, Lose Control, which peaked at number three. Well, my name is Sierra for all you fly fellas. No one can do it better. She'll sing on acapella. Boy, But by the time Sierra got around to her follow-up to goodies, The Evolution, in 2006, the landscape of pop was at an inflection point, churning away from the hip-hop and B of the early aughts that Sierra had capitalized on, and towards more of an electronic European dance style of music, exemplified by songs like Justin Timberlake's Sexy Back. The Evolution featured some of Sierra's best work, music where she leaned even more fully into R&B, most notably on the pitch-perfect lead single, Promise. But this fuller embrace of R&B at a time when radio was moving on from that sound started a commercial slide for Sierra that reached its nadir with her third and fourth albums, 2009's off-delayed Fantasy Ride and 2010's Basic Instinct. They both had their champions, but each were scattered musically and pretty major commercial disappointments. Beginning with 2013's self-titled album, though, Sierra has, in the latter part of her career, been privy to a bit of a resurgence and a reassessment. The modest commercial and robust critical embrace of that album's My Boo sampling lead single, Body Party, rebranded Sierra as more of like a niche R&B artist, while recent club hits like 2019's Level Up have further elevated her as a gay icon. Five, four, three, two, one. Let's go. Level Up. And while Sierra never again reached the commercial heights that seemed promised following her first record, she has maintained a large celebrity presence through her fashion prowess and marriages to rapper Future and football star Russell Wilson. She is embraced by a loyal cult following of fans and has maintained a music career for almost 20 years, a feat made even more impressive given that her commercial peak was a short-lived period during the first George W. Bush administration. Sierra has released seven albums, including one chart topper. Her debut album, Goodies, has sold three million copies in the U.S., and she has one number one single along with another six top tens. Sierra is also widely considered to be one of the most virtuosic dancers and live performers of her generation, evidenced in a plethora of widely regarded award show performances and music videos. Here to talk all things Sierra with me is author, professor, and certified C-Squad member Chris Stedman. Chris wrote an amazing piece in Pitchfork about what it's like to stand Sierra and other underdog pop stars that I absolutely loved, and I knew he was the only person that could do this conversation justice. We had an amazing time talking, and so without further ado, here's my convo with Chris. All right, so I'm here with Chris Stedman, writer, professor, 
fellow pop music enthusiasts. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Welcome to the podcast. Thank you. Thanks for having me. I'm happy to do this and excited to have a conversation today about one of my favorites. Me too. And I and I actually want to get into the conversation by talking about the way that we initially connected, which is that you wrote what I thought was a very astute piece in Pitchfork called The Enduring Appeal of Flops. So <laughs> I guess my first question for you is, yes, we're going to get into all things Sierra, but I'd love it if you could just give us a quick overview in your mind about what exactly a flop is. Because we know it's a term we use colloquially all the time. But I feel like given how much this is going to come up on my podcast moving forward, I'd love to just hear you. <laughs> Just give us a quick rundown on like what a flop is. Sure. If I'm remembering correctly, I think I define a flop as a, a musician, typically a pop star, right, who fails to sort of reach the commercial heights that they, you know, hit at the peak of their career. So um, typically a flop is someone who's, you know, each album sort of sees diminishing returns um, in terms of sales, not necessarily in terms of critical acclaim, which is one thing I'm sure we'll get into. But, you know, a flop is, yeah, a pop star, at least in the realm of pop music, is a pop star who is not seeing the same success they once did. Right. So in your mind, do you think a flop has to be somebody that, like, had success and then lost success or like can a flop be someone that's just like always a flop because I know it's true you can be a flop from the start <laughs> like because I one thing that I want to get into when we when we really dive into it about Sierra is I think some of the of the struggles that she's had post kind of goodies evolution era is that she didn't exist in the universe where flopping had become kind of its own special career like there's, there, mm. I feel like starting kind of in like a post Robin pop universe, there's kind of a separate ecosystem where flopping is this thing where pop stars don't really become mainstream successes, but they kind of carve out a different career as an evergreen flop or something like that. Right. Or maybe they have a very, very brief moment of critical or of uh, commercial success, like a Carly Rae Jepsen. And then, but then, you know, the majority of their career is not them, you know, being sort of commercially successful. Right. Um, but yeah, no, I mean, it's true. And I think in the piece, I do sort of lay out different kinds of flops, right? There's the ones who, you know, have their very their moment in the sun and then continue to maintain a career as this very different kind of artist who's not relying on being the sort of biggest star in the world, but instead has this devoted fan base. And then there are the people who never really were a, a big success in the first place, um, at least musically, someone like a, a Lindsay Lohan for example, who, you know, never... What are you was... saying about Lindsay Lohan's musical career? Because in my mind, the... she was a massive superstar. Sure. Well, <laughs> in your mind, perhaps she was. But um, but yeah, so we connected over that, that piece because I think, you know, a big part of what that piece got into is that for a lot of people who stand a flop, <laughs> it's not simply loving their music it's also something about what that artist represents to them as a person and i use a few examples in that piece i talk about britney obviously um as someone who i have a, you know an emotional connection with but i use as my sort of primary example sierra 
um, who is, you know, one of my favorite musicians ever, um, but who I also, you know, who my appreciation for her is about more than the music in some ways. It's also about, you know, the way that she has continued to persevere in her career, you know, against a number of odds. Yeah, well, so. you know, I think there there's two things that come up for me when you're talking about that. And one is... I think maybe there's a distinction between someone flopping, a.k.a. Joanne or something like that, where it's like you wouldn't call Lady Gaga necessarily a flop. Like it doesn't define her necessarily, but she maybe had a flop. And then you sort of have artists that are perennially considered a flop. And then the second thing that I sort of think about, which I think you're almost hinting at, but we haven't totally put on the table, is the relationship between gay men and flops. And yeah. sort of the what you talk about in your piece a little bit in terms of like this need that gay men feel with their favorite pop stars to sort of defend them to the end and that need only being exacerbated by them underperforming commercially with mainstream audiences. Yeah. And it's this feeling that this person is misunderstood by the world, which is, you know, something that um, people in all kinds of marginalized groups, including gay men, I think really identify with, you know, you see this star who to you is, you know, incredible and and then you see the world not sort of recognizing that and i think that's an experience that a lot of marginalized people connect with on an emotional level absolutely and especially i think between gay men and women in particular yeah gay men you know for many years didn't see themselves represented in popular media and so they used um you know in particular women as these kinds of avatars for emotion right they you know because they didn't see themselves represented in media and their own sort of experiences they looked at the experience of women and in in the case of this conversation women who were for some reason underappreciated and could identify with aspects of that experience and i think that that's that's carried over even as you know lgbt people have broken through into into the mainstream in various ways. Okay, so let's let's uh, bring this conversation into the the Sierra area, as I'm gonna say. <laughs> the Sierra, the Sierra, yes. uh, an important uh, geographical location in which we're going to live today. <laughs> so I feel like, and correct me if I'm wrong, but like Sierra is very much emblematic of the first kind of flop that we were talking about, which is someone that mm -hmm. had an explosive arrival on the music scene with her first record which was goodies it had three huge songs and then it's kind of been like there was that three or four year period where she was a legitimate major pop star but the majority of her career at least in my mind has been in this sort of like I don't want to keep saying flop because it sounds negative but I feel like we yeah. as gay men like don't view it that way which I guess is part of what we were talking about earlier like it's not necessarily yeah. a bad thing to be a flop but I feel like her flop era has been a good 15 years at this point would you concur with that? Yeah. I mean, the reason I chose Sierra as, you know, someone to really focus on when writing that Pitchfork essay is that, I mean, first of all, I, I chose her because, you know, I'm legitimately a stan. Yeah. Like, um, I know her career better than 
almost anyone else's. Like for years, I've jo- I've jokingly, but like also not jokingly, said that one day I want to walk down the aisle to promise. <laughs> like, I I really am a stan. Actually, perfect segue because I would like to talk about the idea of genre as it relates to the the moment where Sierra uh, moved from successful pop star to flop and to me promise is sort of the inflection point and i preparing for this conversation i went back and listened to some of her early records and i was sort of thinking to myself like what is the reason that like goodies and those singles connected so hugely and then the singles on the evolution sort of started what was essentially like an ongoing period of decline that gathered only gathered steam over time so i started to i started to think contextually about what was going on in music so she was very much in the goodies era a product of sort of like the boom of pop and b i.e it was a moment when hip-hop was super prominent in pop music you had j-lo ashanti ja rule like those were the songs that were sort of like defining pop at that time these sort of like frothy hip-hop inflected confections that goodies and one two steps sort of fit really neatly into and then uh you cut to two or three years later 2006 when her second record comes out and she leads with promise which is a pretty profoundly an r&b song like it's r kelly it's prince it's you know there's that there's a certain um, she doubled down on that part of her musical inclination right around the same time that that was sort of going out of fashion. Because I was noticing that the same year The Evolution came out, you have that second Justin Timberlake album, Future Sex Love Sound. You're starting to see the emergence of like what would become this sort of EDM, big tent, dance music, dance pop explosion. And she sort of pivoted in the opposite direction. So I'd love to hear you talk a little bit about the role that genre has played in Sierra's various commercial fortunes. And I guess also whatever other dynamics you think were at play that affected Sierra's commercial endeavors. Well, what's interesting about that, there's a lot there. So, I mean, I think when she came out, she absolutely was, you know, in the right place at the right time. Um, Ashanti was also really huge, as you say. Um, I know, like, growing up, I stand Aaliyah. She was, like, my first musician that I was, like, fully obsessed with. And, That's called you know, taste, she died, Thank you. <laughs> but, you know, after she died, you know, I feel like in many ways, Sierra kind of stepped in as someone who has a thinner voice, but is really, truly like an incredible performer in every way. And it just was a very particular moment. And so in some ways, it's kind of hard to um, judge her career after that moment against it, although inevitable, because some of it was just timing, right? She came out at the right time with the right sound. You know, I think some of it is a struggle of her own making, right? She wants, I think, to occupy different kinds of lanes. And sometimes... There are fans who are kind of not willing to follow an artist down all those different roads. And so sometimes as an artist, especially once you're past your commercial peak, um, you know, as you try to move between lanes, you risk losing fans. So I think that's part of it. But I think some of it might be her inability to kind of decide, am I a pop superstar? Am I an R&B musician, etc.? Some of it, I think, has been the people around her, uh, given the sort of disputes she had with her label. But then I also think, I wonder, at least, if some of it also has to do with sort of, like, there are other musicians who move between genres who don't, who haven't had the same experience, especially, like, 
you know, many of Sierra's white contemporaries, like, can do different kinds of music and are kind of allowed to. Who are, who are and, we talking about? Well, I just think about someone like Britney, who I love, but who, you know, could move between pure pop, more sort of R&B influence music, etc., and be embraced. Whereas when Sierra sort of tries to go for more of a pop sound, in some ways, people see her as like, you know, she's abandoning her R&B bass or something like that. You know, there's something about her wanting to make different kinds of music that is seen as, um, you know, fame chasing or trying to chase success. And maybe that is what it is. But I do, I, I just do think that in some ways, like some of it has to do with what kind of music she's, quote unquote, allowed to make in the public's eye. I- I don't know. Uh, well, it's just something I wonder yeah, about. Yeah, I think it's a really interesting point. And it kind of, like, brings me to, like, there's definitely elements of, like, racialized sort of genre box putting that goes on. And I'm sure Sierra has been the victim of that, no question. All artists of color are. But I also wonder if it just sort of has to do with the kind of music that, like, she wants to be making and an audience's ability to engage with, like, what feels true and authentic. Like, there's ways to engage with pop that feel, for an artist that's not maybe necessarily making pure pop music, generally speaking, that can feel natural and easy to engage with, like a Janet did all the time toggled between the two genres or Rihanna being another interesting example of a woman of color pop star recently who has been able to dial between multiple genres but do it in a way that felt always kind of true to some essence about her and then there's times where it feels like the artist isn't making the kind of music they want to make so for instance when I was going back to the evolution the other day which is that second album I was talking about where she leaned more fully into hip-hop and R&B and became sort of an inflection point in her career I felt like I was listening to the album of an artist who like made the kind of music she was wanting to make at that moment and she um that's when I hear promise which I think we can agree is like maybe her her best song you hear someone like that. It, there's something um, divine about it. And mm-hmm. I think um, when I listen to Love, Sex, Magic, which is then the sort of what I would kind of call a course correction or an attempt at a course correction, a commercial course correction, where, you know, they were floating singles from that third album after the evolution, I think somewhat underperformed, even though Promise was a hit. Um, and they were not connecting, and they pulled in. Well, and there were a few hits from that record, right? Like, like a boy did really I well, think, and but it's not on the same. Not held up as not on the same. Not on the exact level. same level, but if you look at like what songs of hers today, people still go back to. Like a boy is sort of consistently like in her top five on Spotify, one of her most viewed music videos. Right. But you're not. But, but you're, I do But agree. you're coming with yeah, an artist. Not... You're coming. You're. But we're talking contextually against a rec- an sure, album that totally. produced three top two or three singles. I mean, that's there's a difference. Like there's a difference totally. between having you know a, a minor hit and having like a and and you can well, feel that difference in the way that her career is perceived today. Like if you talk to Joe Schmo, basic white girl on the street they'll know goodies in one, two step, but they're not going to know really like a boy or anything, you know, that comes after it as clearly. So what, well, and, and either way, like the people around her very clearly felt that, yeah, the record didn't maybe reach quite the level that it should have. And by, and, and, you know, by the time they're trying to launch fantasy ride, 
the lead single, Go Girl, kind of goes nowhere, right. right? And you can sense, I think you can sense in a song like Love, Sex, Magic that there was a bit of a panic that led to that song. Like, it was not like, okay, if we're just going to quickly position ourselves again here, it's like you have the massive success of the first record with all the hit singles. You have the minor success of the second record, The Evolution, which is you know, still a hit, but not on the same level as the first album. Then you get to this third album in 2009, Fantasy Ride, where she's starting to float singles, like you were saying, uh, Go Girl. And it's, things are kind of awry in Sierra World. And then we get into this song, Love, Sex, Magic, which is the last of a series of singles they're trying to use to get Fantasy Ride off the ground with, and which is written and produced by Justin Timberlake and really features a stamp that's more his than hers, I would say. It's it's a commercial grab. That was not a song that, like, it doesn't, it stands out from the rest of the album to me. It's one of those songs that was very common in that era where singles would get floated and floated and floated, and then they would kind of just fall back and try to find, like, you know, a way to sort of, like, make the most accessible radio-friendly hit for that well, time. And that Love, Sex, Magic And looking back like in... And looking back in hindsight, she like never performs that song. Right, it's it, it, it makes sense to me, and it because it sounds to me like a Justin Timberlake. It just sounds like a B side from Future Sex Love. Sounds. I guess my point with the Love Sex Magic thing is just to point out that it's illustrative of the fact that clearly Sierra felt like things weren't going the way she wanted to in her career commercially, and also to point out that it was illustrative of her maybe losing her musical center. So my question, I guess, for you related to this discussion is like, how has Sierra related to her flopdom? I mean, that's sort and I think that that's a big thing. It's like starting after Fantasy Ride and the debacles around those, the rollout of that album, Sierra really entered a phase of her career where she wasn't the big star that everybody thought she was going to be. That was clear. It was codified. It she was at a low point. And I guess my question is, how did she deal with that? Because you have artists that really lean into that and they and they make music that just goes right for their direct fan base. They're not really trying to like play with radio trends. They're not trying to like achieve a certain amount of mainstream success. And I think part of Sierra's post goodies legacy has been the different ways that she has related to her lack of being a centrist pop star. Yeah. So I actually think there's sort of two ways to look at, you know, her post-evolution career and and the sort of different moves she's made. And I think one of them is a more cynical way of looking at it, which is like she was sort of, you know, she's been perpetually chasing um, the highs of the early days of her career, you know, I, and, and maybe that has been the case in different moments. But I think that you can also look at a lot of what has followed, you know, especially sort of post fantasy ride and see that, you know, in many ways she is, I think, largely making the kind of music that she wants to make, even if maybe she hopes that it will sort of return her to that level of success. I, I guess I don't know, but I don't think that you sort of keep making music in the way that she has unless you're also trying to sort of express, you know, your vision as an artist. And I think you can see that in tons of things in her career. One, you know, Basic Instinct is definitely one of them. That's, I think, a, a really incredible record. And Yeah, and you know, a real it, artistic, like a cohesive statement in terms of like she worked with the Dream and the Dream's related producers for the entire thing. And it had more of like a point of, a solid 
point of view than I think Fantasy Ride did. Absolutely. It definitely had a point of view. And I saw her on the Jackie tour and she didn't play perform Love, Sex, Magic, even though that is, a, you know, technically one of her bigger um, chart hits. But she did perform multiple tracks from Basic Instinct. And I even know on the um, Beauty Marks tour, she was still performing I Run It, which is the closing track on Basic Instinct. So clearly these are songs that she loves that, you know, if her career at this point were really just about trying to recreate earlier successes, she would lean more on the earlier successes than she does. And I, I, think I don't, she... I don't, I'm not saying that I think she's trying to create earlier successes. No. I'm trying, I think it's more that she had there's a certain space that she feels like she's meant to occupy. Like you could see a world where Sierra gave you like the Super Bowl halftime show to end all Super Bowl halftime shows. You know what I mean? Like it would be, Absolutely. whereas like with Absolutely. other flops that you think of more as flops, like, like again, I don't know why we keep coming back to Carly. I just think she's so emblematic of this thing. It's like, that's not really what you see for Carly. Like she, I feel like she's more no. comfortable in where she like, it, she fits more snugly into being a niche artist than Sierra does. Right. Okay, so just to position us a bit here for a second, we have Fantasy Ride, which features Love, Sex, Magic, which is a pretty huge commercial disappointment following her initial burst of fame. Then we have Basic Instinct, which she comes out with right after, which I know is a fan favorite that you have deep affection for, but is an even bigger commercial disappointment. And then we have like a bit of a sea change with her next record, Sierra, which features a sort of critical reassessment of Sierra and also her first, I guess you could call it like a comeback hit, a minor comeback hit, Body Party. So I guess my question for you is, from a critical standpoint, from a cultural standpoint, and from a Sierra standpoint, what is the reason that 2013 Sierra record and Body Party got that cultural reassessment um, that Basic Instinct didn't get? Well, some of it is that people like a narrative of the like comeback, right? And so as soon as Body Party started getting some traction, I think that um, you know that that was kind of inevitable in some ways. But I mean, Body Party is also just a truly, you know, it's a it's a once in a career song for a lot of artists. And and actually, I think that Sierra has a few once in a career songs. But to me, that to me, Body Party them. really is the only like competitor to promise as her like best record to me personally. Yeah. I think you see when um, Body Party starts to take off. Um, and, you know, initially when it comes out, there's that video of like Rihanna and her friends like almost making fun of it when it first comes out. And it looks like it's just going to be another in, you know, in the series of singles that Sierra had put out prior to that song that didn't really go anywhere. And, and then it starts to get this traction. And anytime that happens in Sierra's career, she's going to, you know, take the mileage that she gets from that moment and she has the skills and the work ethic to back it up. And so when body party comes out, you know, she, after 
you know, for Basic Instinct, she was performing on the Monique show on BET and she was performing on the Mario Lopez show. Both shows, obviously, that, you know, only lasted a couple right, years. I was say. And when Body Party comes back, you know, she's getting her first invitations to perform on bigger stages in, in years. You know, she's invited to perform at the BET Awards and she is going to give you in that performance, which she did a full on performance. So the th- I think part of why she has had this lasting success is, that she's had is that she actually does have good instincts. Basic she, instincts, as you know, is <laughs> she has unbasic <laughs> instincts. <laughs> she is, you know, she, she is going to give you a body party. She's going to give you an, I bet, you know, she is going to make really unexpected, interesting career choices along the way that I think continue to buoy her career over the years. And then when she gets those little buoys, she is going to maximize. Right. She knows, she, she can deliver. And, she, she has the, the performance ability and the like hustle to deliver exactly. on the opportunity. And that's why I think she has had a career that has been very, very different from most of her contemporaries in the sense that she continues to stay relevant. Yes. As a celebrity, as you say, and maybe some of that is, is conscious as well, but also she is, making music that isn't just sort of like um you know it's it's not music that gives her an excuse to sort of have a hobby or something i mean it's she's she's creating oh no she she can't do anything that, else but be this person like that's what i mean she's exactly. got that and that, and that continue to have relevance that jacksonian you know? performance music like she comes from that lineage like there is no other thing besides being on stage and being that that consummate entertainer I also was thinking, interestingly, just as you were talking about Body Party in that moment, it was an, it's an interesting confluence of sort of what we were talking, the inverse of what we were talking about with The Evolution, where at that point in 2006, when The Evolution came out, R&B had begun to really recede from mainstream music, and there really wasn't a place for it for numerous years. You had the EDM boom, you know, everything was sort of about you know, big tent dance music, which like really, you know, Sierra gets into freestyle and other forms of dance music, but she's not, she never really rode that EDM wave, fortunately, I think for us. But Body Party was an interesting moment where it was one of those records, again, and I think this also loops back to the concept of authenticity and an audience's ability to suss out a performer's authentic connection to the material they're performing, I think Body Party was very much that for Sierra, where it was like, this is the record that Sierra wants to be making. And it was then 2013 and a moment where there w- began to be some air and space for records that were not EDM. I mean, it was like a right. period from 2008 to 2013 or so. I mean, there was that boom of EDM and EDM inflected pop was so all encompassing. There was just no um, room for much else. And I think Body Party also happened to emerge at a moment where people were potentially looking for breathers from that. Um, And I think that's borne out not just in Sierra, but even other big tent pop records that came after that, whether it's 1989 or Lord's album or whatever, where people were looking for other forms of pop music that wasn't just this kind of like oppressive big room uh, dance music. Yep. And I, and I think that's where, you know, you look back on Sierra's career so far now, and I think you see a moment around fantasy ride where there's this sort of panic and maybe it's in her, maybe it's in the people around her. You see that moment and they go all in on that approach with love, sex, magic, and it does fine, but it's, you know, it doesn't really stick. It, it sort of, you know, it, it comes, 
it it hits for a second and then it sort of goes. And I think you see her decide that she's going to chart the course of her career from there forward. And you, you see, you know, that sort of builds to this moment she's in now where she, you know, owns the masters to all of her own music. She has her own label. She's really sort of taken control of her own career. And maybe she'll never sort of be back at that same level. But you see her making music that I think really connects with her core audience and and so you know that's i think why she continues to have this career that most of her contemporaries don't where she can keep feeding her core audience and like they'll continue to come see her or will continue to come see her and and that's not true i think it's for not. most artists this point in their no, career no and it seems to me that there's sort of a confluence between her success and her sort of embrace of her flopdom and i don't again not to be derogatory with that term but like it seems that sierra no we right, use it with love it's in term it seems that over the course of this conversation what's kind of illuminating for me is that the when sierra has embraced and relaxed around having a hit she's been able to have them <laughs> like you know which i yeah, think is exactly. an interesting thing and again i think you see something after body party and how that connects where you know the, her next lead single off a record after that is i bet which if you're trying to sort of you know become this global superstar again you don't release a lead single like i bet i bet you start loving me Love soon as i start loving someone else somebody better than you i bet you start needing me soon as you see me with someone else somebody other than you This is where I think she gets sort of judged unfairly, or maybe people project things onto her that aren't even necessarily there, which is, you know, I think that some people have this sense that she's really trying to reclaim this position she was once in. I'm not saying you're saying this, but I do think that this is this is a, a, a sort of sentiment that exists. And they point to things like, she's working with Dr. Luke on Jackie. She's making songs like Overdose. But... I think you can look at the fact that those really aren't what she is pushing and putting her weight behind and and maybe you know and and see that maybe those aren't some attempt to you know assert a place in the pop lexicon but rather are just her making you know different kinds of music that she likes to make and I think what's what's super interesting is that if there's tension in the world about where Sierra fits in the pop landscape I'm not really sure that Sierra feels it in herself you know, I think that there there's definitely some sort of fraught layers going on to how people, what kind of box people want to put Sierra in or not. Is she a pop star? Is she an R&B musician, etc.? But I think that Sierra really just is making the music that she wants to yeah. make. And we um, and 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 the more she does that, I think the more we like are are here for it. So you bought me a car. So wait, before before we, I want to make sure we don't run out of time before we get into the, the Pantheon discussion. So I, yeah, I, yeah. Uh, I know we sort of touched on this a little bit, but to me, I'm conflicted about whether to classify Sierra in tier four, which is kind of more of tier about both having a hot moment that, uh, that then is sort of short-lived and forgotten by those who didn't grow up during it um you know you can st those artists can still be around so in a way I feel like Sierra fits in 
with those artists, you know, when you're thinking about, I don't know, Fergie or something like that, where it was like, you know, one big record and then it's sort of been crickets to many since then, although the core fan base might have listened to the Double Duchess or whatever. You know what I mean? Or, right? Like, I don't know. Or, like, I, I feel like Sierra... Which Sierra was in the music video right, exactly, for Right, exactly, exactly. It all comes full circle. But, like, my... Like, so to me, Sierra sort of fits in there, and then she sort of is, like, a Tier 5 niche Charlie XCX of R&B like uh you know it, it's unclear to me like where exactly she fits so i'm curious like if we could maybe hit some of the criteria like one thing i think of that i think kind of excludes her from tier three which is more about like artists that had a, a, an extended hot moment even if they've receded is i think to myself about the tier three girls could they launch like they could probably launch a successful vegas residency and i'm gonna come on here and say to you i don't think sierra could do that yeah, I guess I don't know if she could or not because, you know, um I guess I guess I'm not really sure like Gwen Stefani, for example, is putting out singles these days that don't hit as much as Sierra's. But see, but but and Gwen so, Stefani's um like peak era hit Arsenal, like true smash, like top 10 hit Arsenal is sure. much larger and her and she has two main like she had a serious reinvention that she pulled off successfully so there's really right. well what's two big pop what's interesting about eras, Gwen you know right she's pretty different from someone even like Fergie although I mean Fergie also I sort of falls in this category but you know Gwen also has the hits of no right. doubt that's what I'm saying it's like she's got stuff with. like like yeah. when when you think about Gwen you think of an artist that probably I, I mean definitely for people that grew up with her there's you know 10 to 15 smash hit songs that are like culturally defining hits you know, between no doubt right. and between her solo records so to me sierra right. for every you know insert well, everything yeah. we say about her again none of this is a value judgment it's just like how is it how are they received in culture yeah. i i feel that sierra couldn't really pull that off like I, I don't think that she would be able to fill like because a vegas residency also uh, uh, implies that basics will come and see you you know what I mean? It's yeah. not about playing to your core. It's not about touring hot markets where Sierra can pull, you know, 2,000 people to come see her in a venue. It's like, who's going right. to come to Vegas? And like, you know, some basic is like, oh, Gwen Stefani. Like, I feel like that's that's just way more plausible for me to think of than Sierra. So yeah. I think I, I kind of think, think that's she's... that's probably true. And that was a little bit of a sort of detour that I didn't necessarily. But more that I, you know, I think you're right. I don't think she is in tier three. Um, but I, I, I feel like the tension for you is, is she in four or five? And, you know, for me, I don't think she fits the flash in the pan in, in part because of some of what I've been saying, you know, I think she's actually had longevity that a lot of her kind of flash in the pans peers haven't like she continues to have hits in a way that Carrie Hilson yes, doesn't. Yes, totally. You know? Absolutely. Um, but I also think she's had longevity in a way that, like, the tier fives really don't. You know, I mean, Carly Rae had w two really big hits. She had that Owl City right. song as well. Let's, um, let, let's and, never forget Good Time, please. We have to... Justice yeah, for Good Time. Not, like. <laughs> totally. And Charlie had two really big hits, and Robin had a big hit. And, you know, um, but but that, you know, Sierra has actually had... Sierra's I mean, mainstream Sierra Sierra's actually, mainstream success moment was bigger than those artists were. She could actually put out a greatest hits record that would have enough actual hits to fill the full track list, which, you know, most 
artists really that's true don't. that's true um, and also like you know carly's carly's main moment was really the one song like it was just really the one yeah. song and then the rest of her career has been very squarely in this niche category where sierra's right. more so to, it's just way more ambiguous in that way absolutely but this is where i feel like to me it's it's pretty clear on my end and i'm biased i'm yeah. a stan caveat caveat but it's pretty clear on my end that she falls into the working class pop star category mm. that you've created because to me she um you know she has definitely she has multiple significant breakthrough hits not just from the first record but there's also the missy track right. there's the bow wow um I like you was also really huge <laughs> yeah so good and these are tracks that like you know that that song i think was sampled in a more recent r&b hit and you know like you see sierra's um sort of legacy in newer artists today. i mean you see some I was going to say, Tanache is like her daughter. Normani is sort of always shouting out Sierra as someone who she really looks up to. And, you know, you see her imprint on some of the pop music and R&B music. And Tanache, I feel Um, like Tanache is very afflicted by a similar push and pull, which is that there's a feeling within Tanache world that she should be bigger. And like that she's, and and again, it comes from that same, it comes from that same, um, she's a virtuosic dancer. There's like a certain lineage of Jacksonian pop well, star yeah. that there that creates a conflict of being a niche between being a niche artist and this feeling that they well, should be bigger. Or maybe that's just us coming from where we come from and what we think of as pop stars thinking that they should be bigger, whereas the current landscape is not that hospitable to that type of pop star. Well, I was going to say, I mean, not to sort of sound like a broken record here, but like, look at who these artists are. You know, it's it's Normani, it's Tinashe, it's Sierra, and it's even Janet now. You know, all of these artists who are black women who sort of straddle this line between pop and R&B, who I think, you know, have to deal with um, other sort of factors in, that color the way that people... Uh, uh, sort of interpret their career and what they're allowed to do or not. Very do. true. It's very true. And it's um, also interesting in the context of someone like Ariana, who very much is a non-person of color who um, extrapolates a lot from pop and R and B to great success, mainstream success. You absolutely. Know, which is an interesting absolutely. dichotomy. Um, absolutely. And, but yeah, yeah I, mean, I was just gonna say, going you know, going back to the working class pop star category. I mean, she has the breakthrough hits. She's had, you know, records that continue to debut in the top 10. Um, you know, Beauty Marks didn't, but, you know. <laughs> every but Look, every she, dog has their day, too. This is the other thing that I want to make sure people understand about the Pantheon. It's like, we, we, we got to think of it within limits. At some point, every single musical artist, whether you're Madonna all the way down to Nicole Scherzinger, like, you're going to stop having hits and you're going to stop having big hit right. albums. Like, it's just some of that's out of your but, control. But to be able to come back from a moment like Basic Instinct, which was very commercially unsuccessful, and to have a resurgence like the self-titled era, to continue to put out hits like I Bet and viral hits um, like Level Up, you know, she continues to have, I don't know, y- you might call it semi-relevance. Um, you might say that she, you know, is is relevant to a very particular core audience. But, you know, she... And, and this is where, you know, I, I've something I've said over and over in this conversation is that Sierra will, no matter what she's doing and at what level, she is going to put the work in. She is going to give you 
a, an incredible performance. She's going to give you music that I think she really believes in and that is clearly connecting with an audience. And so, yeah, you know, I definitely don't think that she... I don't think she's a niche legend and I don't think she's a flash in the pan. And I think so much of it has to do with the fact that she just has the drive. Like this is what she was born to do. I mean, I don't believe that people are born to do anything. I do. I do. And I think Sierra was born (laughs) is doing what she was born to do. That's for sure. Yeah. And I think she, you know, she had this really huge moment at the start of her career for a confluence of, of reasons, you know, and some, as I said, some of it was just right person, right place, right time. But lots of people have those big moments and do nothing so with true. them. And she has built a lasting career out of it. And I think it's because she puts in the work and she has the vision and she has the talent. I accept I accept her in tier four 100%, even though I do think she straddles <laughs> the two, but it's in an interesting way. She's dynamic in that way. And I mean that as a compliment. It's like, it's like being an artist that both had a giant moment and then became a critical darling. That's not, you know, that's something just stick your nose up at. It's just an interesting, she's, she, she straddled two eras of pop. And I think that's one of the things that, um, speaks to her longevity and also speaks to kind of maybe the confusion about where to place her in culture, which is that she emerged in a monolithic moment in pop and she fit into the center of that monolithic moment for a minute. And then as that monolithic moment began to splinter in the late aughts into the early 2010s, she sort of moved and adapted in a way that's really respectable into the new format, which is where she was able to play directly to her core fan base and sort of didn't need to be at the center of the mainstream pop cultural landscape. And I think the more that she's embraced that and the more that that she's embraced her status as a critical darling, it reflects positively on her legacy writ large. Like we, 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 she's respected on a certain level. I think she is. And I also think that, you know, she, I think she and her fans, obviously every musician has their sort of like diehard stands who are disconnected from reality and who think that their favorite <laughs> is the biggest star in the world. But I think that she, the delusions of, of being fans, gay. <laughs> yes. But I think she and most of her fans, like they understand where she lands in the sort of, um, in these tiers, but they, you know, they, they don't really, um, I don't think they feel conflicted about it i think that where the the conflicted feelings around sierra arise and i think that they are feelings i feel sometimes too is that you know is when people actually don't see uh and respect the sort of continued work that she has put in right and you know and i think that there are a lot of musicians who have that really big moment and then assume or expect that they should just keep getting success and then they feel wronged by you know the fact that they're not getting the success that they should be getting whereas I think Sierra really just is doing what she loves and and there and it is it is rewarding to be a Sierra fan because she is going to keep giving you the, what made you a fan in the first place. Yeah, I love that. And I think that's a great place for us to wrap this up. So before we get out of here, I just want to ask you, like, what is a Sierra song that maybe like people don't know or is maybe on basic instinct or whatever that you feel like is just an epic, emblematic, superlative Sierra song that people don't know? Oh, man. Um, I mean, I actually think that, yeah, the full Basic Instinct record, um, there are so many songs on that record. Like, I really love, um, 
you can get it. Um, there's some really good like slow R&B tracks on that. Like you can get it. I run it. There's also things like Wants for Dinner is such a good uh, song. Heavy Rotation. So basically great. the but entire actually, Basic Instincts. Say, uh, yeah, yeah. But I was going to say, I feel like every record, she has these really good gems. Like um, Self Titled has Sophomore and Super Turned oh, Up sophomore. that are really good. Yeah. And um, even Beauty Marks. Like I, I commend it to people who haven't checked it out. It's like Jackie, it's a little uneven in spots, but there are some really, really wonderful songs on it. Like Trust Myself and Thinking About You Again um, are really great Let's tracks. go out thinking about you because I think that's a song that we can both agree people should know. Absolutely. Um, all right, Chris, thank you so, so much for doing this. And this was so yeah. much fun. I could talk, I, I, I feel like we could talk about Sierra for 25 hours. Absolutely. And I never get to do this in my like day job. So thank oh, you. My pleasure. <laughs> I, I am so time. excited about getting to have these conversations with everyone. And I hope you'll come back and talk about Britney or whoever else. I also am like having a moment here where I'm thinking like fascinating that the internet premier atheist stands a real woman of God. The judgment is rendered. Sierra joins tier four, a wonderful tier for a wonderful artist who I love so much. And I cannot tell you how many hours I have spent listening to Sierra after this conversation because there's really so much good music. So please heed Chris's advice and go listen to Basic Instinct and go pick up uh, her self-titled album and Jackie. I mean, there really are a lot of gems on there that maybe you've missed. So all love to Sierra. Thank you so much to Chris Stedman for coming on the podcast today. If you enjoyed Pop Pantheon, please, as I mentioned earlier, hit subscribe, leave us a review, let me know who you want to have us talk about on the show. Go over to Instagram and follow us at Pop Pantheon Pod. We're also on Twitter. I'm on both Instagram and Twitter at DJ Louie, L O U I E X I V. And I also like to plug that I throw a really fun party where we play lots of Sierra songs every Friday night on twitch.tv slash DJ Louie XIV. So hop on over there, join the fun, get in the chat with all pop girls and fans. It's really a fun time. And with all of that said, I will see you guys for the next episode. Bye-bye. Oh,